Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. If we've had time to have the discussion about keeping your loved one in their familiar environment, surrounding them with people that know them really well, when something does happen in the middle of the night, everyone's on the same page and knows what to do. Hi, it's Hilton Coppy here and welcome once again to Dementia in Practice. Uh, I'm still sitting in my office in Lennox Head. The spring birds are out the window. They're joining us as well. But if this is your first time listening to our podcast, we are three GPs making this podcast for other GPs, but also for anyone who wants to learn more about dementia. Welcome, as always, to my co-hosts, Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia. Today we're talking about the very important role that GPs can play in the end-of-life care for people living with dementia. And I suppose we've all probably got some experience of this. I mean, I have even personal experience with my grandfather um, who passed away from dementia and and going through that with my mum was... um, you know, a, a very powerful experience. And I'm sure, Marita, you've had similar experiences, both professionally and personally. Yeah, so I think from a personal experience, you know, with dad, it was kind of felt like quite a protracted course, the, the end of life care. It was sort of just almost like you just can't really get a sense of when or what will happen. You know, it's very different to um, something like, cancer I think because there's check-ins all the way as to to what's happening and what organs might be affected and and what you might be able to anticipate and I think with um, end-of-life care with dementia it's 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 difficult and it's and it's kind of new it's only really newly been understood to be a terminal illness which means that palliative care services probably haven't quite directed their attention to to end-of-life care with dementia. So I think it can be a really tricky road for people living with dementia and, of course, their carers. Well, to help us navigate that tricky road, I caught up with Brisbane GP Dr Karen Savory. And I'm not going to say too much more to introduce her because I think her first words will say it all. my favorite time of the week heading out to the nursing home what what do you like about it it's the one place where you can walk in the room people smile as soon as they see you there's some great stories within uh, some of that elderly population it's actually really enjoyable I know some GPs uh, they feel that the visits to residential aged care are an added extra that they do um, like on the way to work or on the way home. But it sounds like you set aside time specifically to allow you to uh, focus fully on the work there. Yeah, and I think that certainly makes a huge difference. I can go and spend the morning, you know, and, and take my time. I'm not sort of rushing in just to see one or two people. I can do that if I choose to, but going regularly puts out a lot of those spot fires so that there's less of those uh, sort of acute call-outs. 
And it sounds like perhaps you get time to spend more time with the people and hear their stories and, and get to know them. Yeah, yeah. And there's some fascinating stories, particularly with some of our patients with dementia as we hear more about um, what they were like as young people and, and through their lives. So, Karen, I think most people in the community are aware that dementia causes memory problems, but I think many perhaps don't think of it as a terminal illness. So how does end-of-life care with dementia differ from, say, cancer or other terminal illnesses? I think the main difference is that that end-of-life care can be very prolonged, um, which is really difficult for families to watch particularly if recognition of themselves and communication, um, you know, all becomes lost. Uh, this is, you know, it really can be very difficult because this may go on for, for a year or more. But at times there can be acute events, so where, you know, a fall or infection might actually cause a sudden unexpected death or look like there's going to be an unexpected death and people bounce back again. So it really can be quite unpredictable. Yeah, I know um, there's been quite a few people that I've cared for uh, in the later stages of dementia, and, and I thought, oh, this is it for sure. They've um, getting to the last days and told the family they need to get extended family in from interstate, and then they, they've sort of bounced back. And in fact, um, the son of one of my favourite old patients said to me after this had happened a few times, he said, Hilton, do you actually ever get anything right? Because I'd got it wrong <laughs> quite a few times. So it, it, it's really quite difficult. And so, Karen, when you're talking with families, how do you help prepare them for this sort of long goodbye? Yeah, look, I try and talk to them early and then repeatedly. So depending on when I've met the person in the first place that has dementia, but I often talk about sort of years, then months to years, then weeks to months, then days to weeks. So just to give the family some idea of that sort of progression of illness. But then certainly when they get to that sort of months, months or weeks, they start talking about the potential for acute events, um, there's still an element of surprise, but just to give them some warning that it can happen. And this kind of concept of transitioning from what we might call active care to end of life care is tricky in dementia. I mean, it's tricky anytime, but it's particularly mm -hmm. tricky in dementia. So I guess by active care and dementia, we're talking about some of the risk factor management, maybe some medications that are helping for cognition, things where we're trying to slow the decline of the dementia. Mm. And some of those treatments can have side effects. And I guess once a person reaches a point where they're entering the, the end of life stage, there's this transition to rationalizing some of those more active treatments to minimize side effects and focusing more on dignity through comfort. Mm. What, what sort of processes do you go through both uh, for, with the patients, with their family, and also with if the person's living in a residential aged care facility with the staff there? Depends on the patient, really, because most, you know, there's many people in this transition time that really have lost the cognition to discuss it, which is why it's really important to be able to have this conversation as early as we can. 
in that dementia process so that people can actually voice their wishes. Around medications, often people are just happy to have less. The families might be unhappy or, you know, query why we're ceasing things. The patients themselves often are just are just happy to have less medication. So it is a, a difficult balance where it really becomes around thinking about that advanced care planning and also helping families negotiate as well. So I guess this is one of the reasons why uh, we try to encourage uh, an early diagnosis of dementia is so that mm. these conversations can take place while the person still has capacity. Absolutely. You know, it's really difficult to follow people's wishes if you don't actually know what they are. And by the time uh, you know, people have come into the residential care and perhaps in this transition time, they may have lost their capacity to actually discuss what their wishes are. So it is really important to have that discussion early. And assuming that you're caring for a, a person who's in a residential aged care facility and you sort of think, well, the time has come to transition from active care to end of life care, how might you explain that to the family first? And then how might you explain that to the staff in the residential aged care facility? So often having those early and repeated conversations with family make that easier because you can start to highlight that this time will come. And again, I start talking about the fact that we've moved into a stage which might be weeks to months, for example, and that we need to think about what happens next, particularly if mum or dad or partner has an acute event. So it's much easier to have that conversation with families when you're not in the middle of something happening, when there's less emotion around than being called in the middle of the night when mum or dad or their partner has had a fall or a fever. So again, that concept of uh, prior planning to prevent a poor performance uh, by discussing Absolutely. things ahead of time. Absolutely. Very difficult for families if they receive a phone call in the middle of the night with no prior discussion to not say transfer to hospital. You know, that burden of responsibility is difficult, particularly because it's usually in the middle of the night. At that point, if we've had time to have the discussion about comfort cares, keeping your loved one in their familiar environment, surrounding them with people that know them really well, most will families will choose that as an option, which we then can document very carefully so that when something does happen in the middle of the night or with a locum staff that's on everyone's on the same page and knows what to do. And I think the other part to that is anticipatory prescribing as well. Pain is a, a common driver to send people to hospital. So if we've had the talk to the family about having something there just in case, which often we don't end up using, but it does mean if the staff have got something, they're less likely to want to send somebody to hospital as well. So how do you communicate these concepts with the staff at the residential aged care facilities where you work, Karen? Often I do involve them in conversations with the family. So sometimes we'll speak with families alone. Sometimes we'll do them in conjunction with one of the nursing staff just to have everything well documented. So that's certainly one way. I also document it very clearly in my notes as well so that everyone knows what the kind of goals of care are and what the plan is. And for most of 
the residential aged care now, they will have a spot where they can have that clearly documented so you're not having to search back through people's notes to find out what their advanced health directive is. They're much better at having that very clearly um, and easily found. So, Steph, earlier on in that interview, uh, Karen mentioned about dementia being a terminal illness. I wonder if you might just explain a little bit, what is it about dementia that does make it terminal? I guess you have to look back at the definition that we we spoke about right at the beginning of our podcast. And, you know, it is a progressive um, disease. So the whole brain is affected at some point. And when your whole brain is affected, then it's going to affect some of your um, you know, core functions and, and some of the basic functions of life. So eating, drinking and breathing to a certain extent. Um, your brain is kind of like the base computer for the rest of your body. So if in the end the whole of the brain is affected, then eventually it will affect your ability to to continue to be alive. Yeah. So when you think of some of the, um, I guess, prognostic features that we look at if someone's not doing so well and Hilton you sort of alluded to this with your getting it wrong so many times you know you start to see people starting to get pneumonia or urinary tract infections or they start to lose weight because they're not you know able to to eat so well or they're you know starting to get pressure stores from not moving so well these are all those sort of indicators that that terminal um, phase is coming. And Karen mentioned uh, during the interview, uh, she called them acute events. I think these are the sort of things that you're alluding to, Marita. Can you expand a little bit more on what the acute events might be and and how they manifest during the end of life for someone with dementia? Yes, I suppose there's two things there. So I guess there can be sort of an acute event that may not be sort of explicitly related to dementia. So, for example, someone with a vascular dementia may have an acute event that could be, you know, chest pain or, or a, um, you know, an AMI, something like that, or the, more, the ones that are more related to specifically to dementia. So an aspiration pneumonia or a urinary tract infection because you've become incontinent of, you know, urine and, and feces. They might be the more acute event that you might want to have something sort of drawn out in the notes that Karen was referring to, which are probably a little bit more predictable than, I guess, someone having, you know, chest pain or escalating angina or something like that that might be a little bit different. But I think the the key message is probably that these things are going to happen. And we know that if the family and the carers the doctor, the staff, everyone's on board with what the plan is, we can avoid those unnecessary transfers to hospital so that the person with dementia is kept comfortable and safe and can be, I guess, entitled to have have a peaceful end-of-life process rather than off to a hospital, having bloods done, having IVs done, give, put in, giving you know antibiotics. For someone who it's probably not going to make a big difference to their ultimate, you know, um, mortality. So, Steph, you're um, you're way younger than me, so you've worked in hospitals uh, much more recently than I have. What's it like caring for people in hospital who have dementia? How do how do they go? What's that like for the person and the staff? Well, I think you know, for anyone who, um, whether they have dementia or not, dying in hospital is not a very 
dignified or peaceful death for anyone. Um, and actually, when they've done surveys about this, most people would prefer to die in their own home. And it's no wonder because it's a busy environment. There's lots of noise. There's no, you know, there's people coming in and out of the room all the time. And, and both for the person concerned and also their family, it, it's really not the right environment. People with dementia particularly can be even more affected by that um, sensory overload. So uh, even if you're at end of life, you know, you can still be affected by lights, bright lights and sounds that can be still quite distressing. So I think trying as much as possible to avoid a hospital admission um, for something like a a UTI or something like that and and caring for somebody in their own home or in a residential aged care facility is what we should be aiming to do. And actually some of the hospitals around here and in Adelaide and also the residential facility staff have have been recently trained in trying to think more about end of life care for people and thinking that that surprise question so would I be surprised if this person was to die in the next 12 months and and if you wouldn't be surprised then trying to take steps to think about that anticipatory care and and as Karen so eloquently talked about involving families and the substitute decision makers and and making everyone aware that the potential for something to happen to this person is likely within the next 12 months and that makes everything a lot easier for people to manage when they you know they have that plan. So one of the processes to help facilitate those kind of discussions between uh, the person with dementia, their family, carers and the staff at a residential aged care facility is a family conference or a case conference. So Marita, can you talk a little about how that might work and what are some of the advantages or challenges of family conferences? Yeah, so again, there's a few things here when we're thinking about sort of planning end-of-life care, and ideally, of course, that should start at the very beginning when a diagnosis is made, but families, doctors, people living with dementia often find that a very difficult conversation to have because at that time they're often still independent and at home and probably very fearful of what what lays ahead anyway. So so sometimes that opportunity is missed early on to really know what it is that the the patient wants. So uh, I guess that's about trying to pick the time of how you might talk about that but as things progress and when the writing potentially is on the wall so someone is getting recurrent pneumonias or recurrent UTIs or you can feel that they really are coming towards the end like Steph said you know you, you would be surprised if they lived beyond 12 months I guess that's the time when you want to start thinking about having some family conferences and I really liked how Karen talked about having conversations early but repeating them and I mean that's a lot of what we talk about in our teaching as well that it's sort of having those raising those um, issues sort of over and over again the beauty of having the family conference is to get you know something on paper that's clear for everyone so you've got a plan an anticipatory plan for if if things were to happen overnight so that you know it's you're not relying on perhaps someone who doesn't know the person trying to make decisions but of course families aren't always on the same page you know so that can sometimes be quite challenging to try to negotiate a plan to get everyone on the same page. You might have the medical guardian or substitute decision maker who's got a very good understanding of what mum or dad or partner wants, 
but there may be other people in the family who don't have that understanding and that I guess can cause some conflict. So again, I think when you're heading into a family conference, that prior planning is really important to, to be very clear about what the agenda is and to get the um, wishes of the person living with dementia central to the whole discussion. I think it comes back to that health literacy thing as well, Marita. You know, if the families are on a different page in terms of understanding what end of life, you know, means for that person or even, you know, just what some of the processes are around end of life, you know, they have their own health beliefs. Having that conversation in a calm way before there is an acute event means that you can have some of those, you know, difficult conversations and maybe challenge some of those um, belief systems that might you know might impair good care when it when it comes to it yeah exactly I remember a, a great example of keeping the person with dementia central was a, a patient of mine who, who was admitted to a residential aged care facility she had a vascular dementia she was in probably earlier stage three or transitioning from stage two to stage three her husband was her main carer and he died suddenly and her daughter tried to care for at home but realised that the care needs were great, too great. So she was admitted to a local uh, residential aged care facility. And this woman, she, um, she didn't know what day it was. She didn't know where she was. She didn't quite understand who the people were around the table. But she kind of remembered that I was her doctor. And when we spoke about the sort of care that she might like to receive if she developed a pneumonia or got a condition where she felt where there was little hope of her recovery. She was so clear that she wouldn't want life-prolonging treatments. So this lifelong-held belief about the level of care that she would like to have at the end of her life remained strong and true. We'd had these conversations before, so I knew these were her wishes, but for the staff to hear that and for her daughters to hear that once again relieved them of the burden of having to make difficult decisions when in fact she did develop her pneumonia some months later. We were able to follow her wishes because we knew what her wishes were. So maybe now we can return to the interview with Karen and hear a little more what she's got to say about end-of-life care. So what are some of the indicators that you might be looking for uh, to make you think that someone's transitioning from years to months, say, down to months to weeks? Yeah, often we are starting to see um, people become stuck in, you know, sitting in chairs or beds with really not able to do any of their um, daily activities themselves. So fully dependent for all cares, you know, little or no communication, often their desire for food and fluids really reduces. They might be starting to have some swallowing difficulties. So there's, there's certainly some of those clues that let us know that people are clinically deteriorating. I think in the past, when I first started, we'd see much more in the way of pressure areas and contractures, but really don't see a lot of that. I think staff are much more on top of those sorts of things now, so that's not such an obvious indicator as it once was. But certainly sometimes we see pressure areas just because people aren't able to move like they once did. 
And then what about the signs that you notice when someone's transitioning to really to the terminal phase where you might be talking days to weeks? What sort of, what would be the indicators of that stage, Karen? Certainly, I think we often see that just reduced level of consciousness or, you know, much more drowsy, longer and longer drowsy periods and and less time actually awake. Often there really is no desire for food or fluid or occasionally it's, you know, only ice cream and nothing else. But, you know, that really significant drop off in oral intake and those two things certainly make us aware that things things are changing. And obviously sometimes we'll see some of that of rattling that people get as they can't control some of their secretions, you know, when they're very terminal. Um, but certainly drowsiness, I think, is a really a really common appearance. So you mentioned earlier uh, this wonderful term, anticipatory prescribing with relation to pain. I, I just love that expression, anticipatory prescribing. Apart from prescribing in an anticipatory capacity for pain, are there what other symptoms might you be making PRN prescriptions available for the person? So often I will write up some subcut morphine and midazolam, so pain and agitation. And the nursing staff will give that just as a PRN dose if they need to. And I would think at least half the time people don't actually need anything. So quite often in my uh People that have dementia in their very advanced stages, they're not in pain. They're not actually needing anything. If they appear comfortable, we won't prescribe. Sometimes we do need to give something a little bit more. So if they're needing regular or more than a couple of PRN doses, then we will set up a syringe driver as well, where I might also put in a little bit of haloperidol along with the morphine and midazolam. Sounds, Karen, like you're so lucky the relationships and the staffing that you've got at the residential aged care facility where you work, because I know in some facilities, uh, having access to syringe drivers isn't always so easy. So uh, lucky for your patients that you're able to offer them that level of care. Yeah, no, I feel very fortunate uh, because it really does give you just another arm to use in that terminal phase. Sometimes uh, symptom management uh, right at the end of life can be quite difficult. And uh, where I work, I've got a good relationship with the palliative care team. And while mostly they've been helpful uh, with regards to patients with cancer, I have used their advice and their service for a couple of patients with dementia when things have been really tricky in the last weeks of someone's life. So uh, I guess that's just another thing, Karen, to, for those of us who are doing this work that we might think about. Absolutely. And depending on where you are, there's both public palliative care teams, some private teams as well, and the community palliative care teams can be fantastic too. Do you ever find that families have some resistance to some of those medications, say morphine, for example? Yes, certainly some families are hesitant to consider things like morphine, which again is why you want to have those earlier conversations with them. Um, Once you explain it's not about hastening death, in fact, there's no evidence that it does hasten death um, and it is about keeping their loved one comfortable, then I haven't had anyone refuse after that. So again, it's it's good explanation is important. 
Could you tell us exactly what you might write on a medication chart for someone who's got dementia? How might you write up some morphine? What words would you put on the medication chart? Um, so again, most medication charts have space in their PRN for writing the reasons. So I would write, you know, acute significant pain only or, you know, acute shortness of breath if they happen to be somebody that has other comorbidities. So I'm pretty clear about what I write there. And again, I documented in my notes as well. And how do you find generally the nursing staff go with managing those sort of medications? They actually manage that incredibly well. It's actually made it much more difficult to look after people in the community now because I'm so used to being able to set things up within the aged care facility. What do you do, Karen, when someone dies? What's what's your process for if a patient of yours dies in a residential aged care facility from dementia? What what do you do after that? Usually after that, actually the staff take care of everything. So I sometimes will have contact with the families if if they wish for that, but often um, the staff are the ones that are contacting the families at that point. I do a death certificate, obviously. So it sounds, Karen, that a really big part of all this is about relationships. So there's the relationship that you've developed with the person with dementia over the years and relationship with their family or carers, and then also relationships with the staff. seems like that's a very important part of this work. Yeah. And I think at this point, in this very sort of terminal phase, management really is all about comfort cares of the person in front of you, but also managing sort of the family's expectations and grief. And then, as you say, the staff as well. Uh, It really doesn't matter how old somebody is or how far along in their, you know, dementia journey. They're often still somebody's mum or dad or partner. So there's a lot of grief. What do you do to help manage that grief, Karen? I think just really clear explanations um, makes a big difference and giving time to families when that's needed and then being able to have everyone on the same page. So being able to document really clearly what the wishes might have been, what our goals are so that the staff know and the families know. And what about for yourself? As you know, I'm interested in doctor wellbeing. How, how do you manage the emotional impact of this work yourself? I think I really enjoy seeing palliative care done well. So, you know, the fact that you've got the privilege of being involved in, you know, families' lives and many of these residents I've known for years by the time they get to this point. So it is a long journey with them. And so you really do, you know, get to feel that sort of part of the family. Um, I always make it a priority to ring the families myself when things are changing rather than leaving it to the nursing staff to do so that again I know exactly what's being said. I think I find that I find the journey it is actually nice being able to journey with people. So Karen covered so much uh, material in that interview and She's just so good at explaining things in such a clear way. I'm sure her patients and the people she works with must just enjoy working with her so much. But Stefan Marita, I'm 
I'm interested for each of you at, I guess, more at a personal level. So as a GP, we have this opportunity to know people often, well, for many years, and often we'll know them when they're well, and then we're involved at the time of a diagnosis, and then involved in their care, often things go well, and then might relapse a little bit, and then get better again, and then there's the transition to terminal care, which we've been speaking about today. What's that journey been like for you as the GP for someone knowing them before they have dementia, through their dementia journey, and then being involved in their end-of-life care? I'd have to say that probably I've had more to do in that setting with with patients who I guess have been diagnosed with a cancer. I've been in general practice for 10 years and I've actually moved practices quite a few times due to, you know, relocating. So I suppose I haven't quite got to that point where I've had, you know, patients over a really extended period of time. And one of the things I think that really makes it a little bit more complicated with um, caring for people with dementia, and I'm still trying to get my head around a lot of this is the way that um, general practice is set up certainly in a place like Melbourne is that you a lot of people work in general practice or certainly in our in our practices or in aged care there's not many people who cross over both there's still a few people who do it but you need to have a certain number of patients to really be able to do what Karen's or manage it how Karen's managing it otherwise it is that drop in before work or drop in after work or trying to to manage things you know at lunchtime so it's one of the things that really that really upsets me actually that when my patients do transition into care you have to kind of hand them over to someone else and there's not a really smooth system for all that so I think for a lot of people living with dementia and their families this is a really really tricky time it's not always like how Karen's doing it so I'm still yet to get my head around the best way to do that. Mm, I feel exactly the same way Marita in the UK um GPs are much more involved in palliative care and end-of-life care and we do do that kind of between the clinic and also looking after residential facilities as well so we have that oversight of both and since being in Australia I've really missed that last little step that I I really found um, it was very rewarding looking after Mm. people during that transition and and being able to um, continue that relationship with families um, when they are going through such a hard time and I recognize that that must be such a challenge for the the people living here because they'll then have to get to know a new clinician and a new person and equally that clinician has to get to know a new person as well Mm. and that can you know takes a little bit of time and and it can be quite a difficult situation so um Mm. that fragmented care can really impact on people but where I have been involved in it I've certainly echo what Karen was saying about how it can um it's not a smooth process necessarily even for the person because you know they there can be repeated acute events where you would expect Perhaps somebody wouldn't survive that, but then they do. And then another one happens and um, mm. and then they, they seem okay after that. And that it's quite different to managing other palliative care um, 
you know, with cancers and things like that. And as she said, actually, she rarely uses a syringe driver because we often use that in in cancer palliative care, but you don't Mm. often use it in dementia because it's just a different Mm. process. And I think we need to adapt you know, the healthcare system needs to adapt to that and, and learn how to do this better for patients and people living with dementia. I mean, I really believe 10 years ago, most of us wouldn't have accepted that dementia was a terminal illness. We would have talked about people dying with dementia, not from dementia. One of the things that might change in the future with some of the um, Royal Commission recommendations is that you might have um, GP practices that are accredited for looking after the ageing population. And so that they're going to encourage people to register with one practice. Um, And so you might get that sort of practice where you do have some practitioners who are working in an aged care facility but also other practitioners you know sharing the load a bit I don't know it's a the system is going to have to change to make things a little smoother for people I think or you could all just uh, move to the country like where I do and where (laughs) we actually get to do end of life care in residential aged care well I, I have had the opportunity to do that on many occasions to journey with people and and not have to do the handover and while as Karen suggested it can be personally quite taxing at the same time it's so personally rewarding uh, to be able to complete the journey and in fact I've had a policy of the only people I care for in residential aged care are people that I've cared for before they're in residential aged care so uh, that it's honouring my commitment to them and, and that's been incredibly rewarding which kind of brings me to the point where we might wrap things up and that's uh, after someone dies from dementia in general practice we're often the GP for the other family members and I wonder if either of you have had the experience of offering afterlife care what a terrible expression that is to um, to family members once once someone's died from dementia what, what's your experience been with that it's kind of a bit of a funny space to be in I found particularly when you're not the family's GP it's one of those sort of positions where you're sort of often not quite sure what the right or the appropriate thing to do is and occasionally you know they might come to you to to just sort of almost say goodbye you know and sort of those exchanges of what the journey had been a little bit different if you're still you know part of the well, the family members, GPs, because you still have sort of that ongoing contact and, you you know, you probably a few of the, the, the consults after, you know, you'll talk about it and chat about it and kind of have a few, share a few memories. But if you don't have that contact, it, yeah, it can be quite a funny space to find yourself in because you're sort of grieving yourself. I don't know how you find that, Steph. I was just reflecting on experiences where perhaps the family member themselves is grieving whilst their family member is still alive, but they're grieving the loss of their parents whilst they're still alive. And that's even more of a challenging situation because they're aware that this is happening and feeling like they're losing them all the time. And I guess it's just a reflection that it's not just after death. You know, some people Mm. can be grieving 
during life. And we need to be aware of that as well and supporting people through that, which, which, as we said, can go on for months or even years mm. sometimes. You know, this has a big impact on, on families and, and, and how we support them. I guess that's why they call this, you know, the long goodbye. Yeah, and it, it reminds me again, maybe this is a, a rural or regional general practice story, but uh, once uh, I had a, uh, a new patient come to see me and uh, I, his wife had died from dementia and one of my colleagues had been the GP for, for the both partners in the, in the couple, but after she died... He didn't want to go back into that room where he'd been with her so many times to see the old GP. And so he chose to see me instead because there were so many memories in that room. And uh, I was quite touched by that, that even walking into my colleague's room was a, a trigger for his grief. But I also was mindful of what might happen for my colleague. And so after I'd, I'd seen this gentleman, I made a point of saying to my colleague that his former patient had come to see me, not because he was angry or disappointed or thought that he'd done a bad job, but because he just was too overwhelmed to go back into that room. And so that's like this thing about caring for each other as practitioners that we need to keep, keep in mind. Uh, as we do this uh, rewarding but challenging work. Totally agree. So in that reflective frame of mind, we might wrap up the conversation for this episode. Yeah, so Hilton, on the next episode of Dementia and Practice, we'll be looking at the impact that months of lockdown and isolation caused by the COVID-19 pandemic has had on people living with dementia, both in aged care facilities and in the community. That's all coming up next time. And please keep that great feedback coming by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or just letting your friends and colleagues know about Dementia in Practice. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at DementiaTrainAU on Twitter. Thanks again, Steph and Marita, for your input. Uh, we look forward to seeing you all again next time. Bye for now. If you're a person living with dementia or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.